Blog Talk Radio. Hello and welcome to the Compulsive Reader Talks. I'm Magdalena Ball and today's guest is Aaron Paul Lazar. Aaron is the author of More Mysteries and the Lagarde Mystery Series, the latest of which is Tremolo, Cry of the Loon, which he'll be reading from today and we'll also be having a good chat about it. Aaron, welcome. Thank you, Maggie. It's so nice to be here. Yeah, it's lovely to have you on the show. Now, before we begin chatting about the book, um, some of our listeners won't have read Tremolo as yet. I know they will um, soon, but they haven't got to it yet. Can we have a little, just a little taste of the book? Oh, certainly. Um, do you want me to read a little bit or talk a little bit? Read a little bit, please. Okay, sure. You can talk a little bit and read a little bit if you like. Okay, okay. Well, first of all, <clears throat> excuse me, Tremolo is set in 1964 in Maine on the Belgrade Lakes. And it's, uh, we call it a literary mystery, but it's also a coming-of-age mystery. And Gus Lagarde, who is the protagonist in the adult Gus Lagarde series, that there are several other books that um, take care of him when he's an adult. This one takes him back to when he's 11 years old, and he's spending the summer at his grandparents' camp in Maine. And it's the, the book that lets him get his first brush with evil, and he has to dig down deep inside himself to find the characteristics that are going to make him become the man he is in the adult series, for example. Um, so it's, it's kind of interesting for those that you know, maybe already know Gus as an adult. It's kind of fun, I think, to go back and see what made him become that way you know, as a boy. So let me read to you. I'll just read uh, the first couple paragraphs, and then we can start talking. This is from Chapter 2, when Gus and his friends have just capsized their boat. The fog condensed and settled in for the night, thick and impenetrable. Our parents' voices warbled through the mist, becoming fainter as we drifted away. The lake water grew warmer than the air. We reconnected our grip beneath the cushions, looping through the handles and grasping each other's prune-wrinkled fingers. Elsbeth began to weep her breath hitching with each sob. Don't cry, I said. It'll just make you tired. You've got to save your strength. Okay, I'll stop there. <laughs> then we come back to it. Okay, that's, that's lovely. And why did you pick that particular place to read? Well, um, I guess because the book is all about the lake. And there's, there's a, a very strong element of nature that that goes throughout all of the chapters. Um, the water, the boats, the trees, the loons, it's just so, um, it, it just weaves through the whole story, you know. And yes, there's a mystery that goes on, and yes, there are um, family dramas that happen, and um, there are some, there is a mysterious woman who comes to a cabin and all that, but behind all of it is a very strong character itself of nature, basically. So I wanted to start with something where they were right in the water. <laughs> I love the idea of that um, nature itself being a kind of character. Do, do you sometimes feel like that yourself as a writer, sort of as you're walking around in the world and you know looking around that that you know there is actually a kind of character outside yeah, I, as well I do, as inside? I do. And um, you know I live in um, upstate New York and near the Genesee Valley, and uh, we moved out here back in 81 when I was just starting my engineering career. 
Um, and I fell in love with this area because it's so pristine and full of woods and rolling hills and you know farms, lots and lots of farms. And it reminded me a little bit of Maine, where I spent my summers at my grandparents' camp. So when I do my adult series, the ones that happen after Tremolo, they all take place here. And it's the same kind of thing where we're always outside. You know, we're either in the garden or um, running through the woods chasing a bad guy or, you know, or rescuing somebody on a cross-country ski trip. Or, you know, there's a lot of outdoors that happens in all of my books. And I, I guess it's because I just love it so much. Mm. I really felt the um, the sense of nostalgia permeating Tremolo. It, it's yeah. um, you know it's a really important, almost an important driver for the action. Um, it is. Do, do you, is this your own nostalgia? Do you feel in a way? Um, oh, absolutely. Go back to a place you can't go back to. Exactly, exactly. My happiest childhood times were at camp. This camp was it was very rustic, you know. Um, right on the water with like 15 cabins, and we had five docks. My grandparents ran it, and they had a giant um, dining room where the guests would come to eat all three meals, like I guess you call it the American plan, where folks come in and they just get fed the whole time. We had a living room, which was sort of the social gathering room with a piano and a poker table and a lot of books and a fireplace, you know, and that was where everybody went at night. Um, and it was it was just so amazing to be a kid and be able to run free, you know, in the woods, swimming, boating, um, playing on the big old rocks that we had that were, you know, became suddenly a ship. You know, you'd, I took a broom and I'd sweep off all the pine needles and it would become my battleship or whatever. And, and I played with a lot of kids up there. And we never had anything, you know, electronic, obviously, because it was back in the 60s. But there was no TV, no radio, or at least not one that I heard. Um, rarely had any toys. We really didn't need toys because we had the outside. And we would just go outside and play. And it was such a wonderful time. I, I always think back to it. And, you know, almost um, when, thing, when times get tough, you know, I would think back on it with great nostalgia. And it's very comforting to me. So I had this strong drive to capture that that whole place and all the things that happened around that time into one story. And it just so happened that I already had my whole family of Gus Lagarde, you know, was born, so to speak, already and living in the current day and having all these adventures. And it just so happened I had him and I was able to take him and plop him back in time to my childhood, uh, where, of course, I had a little mystery on top of it all, you know. And luckily the mystery... All the mysteries and the villains are made up, thank goodness. <laughs> you know? But you're right, the nostalgia so, no, I'm sure is... we can uh, find characteristics of those in people you know. Yeah, right. Oh, sure. Oh, sure. And, of course, there's always, you know, movies and other books to give you good ideas about how nasty villains can be. Mm. It's kind of interesting. I mean, normally when you're writing a novel, and I guess normally when you're writing your adult Gus books... Mm -hmm. um, you know, you're kind of imagining the backstory. The backstory is sort of sitting behind everything. I suppose Absolutely. when you were actually working on this, because you already had um, sort of the future in place, mm -hmm. mm -hmm. it's yeah. almost like your forward story was the background. And, yeah, it, you know, it's true. Very true. It was sort of backwards. <laughs> Although I had, in, um, in the adult story, I had already created very rich histories for each character. Um, you know, when we open up in Double Forte, 
Gus's wife has already been gone and passed away four years earlier. And there's a huge history that I occasionally flash back to in the adult stories of what happened as he was growing up or, um, you know, what happened to shape his personality or his friends' personalities as they were going along. So I had already created a lot of those things, and some of them melded into tremolo, and some of them were just sort of reinforced by tremolo. Mm. I feel. I wonder if um, readers, too, when they're reading it, um, don't come to it with this sort of sense of what Gus is going to become. Mm-hmm. And as they read about him in the present tense, because it, I, you know, I feel like Tremolo stands alone, and also that the character is, you know, is very much in that moment, mm-hmm. um, and, and mm-hmm. that's all we get. But nevertheless, there is a kind of sense of the future, isn't there? Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah, because in in the future, Gus does get faced with a great deal of challenges that require his integrity and honor and bravery and all of the things that he sort of develops as a boy when he gets this, you know, taste of evil in this story. And there are um, some pretty adult themes that actually are happening behind the scenes. You know, we don't talk about what really happens to the girl, and I'm not going to give it away now, but um, but really there are some pretty serious evil things going on in the background, and, we, and I don't go into anything in gory detail. It's, a lot of it is implied. Um, when I wrote this, I didn't intend on having young people, for example, as my audience. I didn't really think about who would be my audience, which is a terrible thing to admit for a novel. You're supposed to know your genre, know your audience. You know, I just wrote it for me. And then um, it was kind of funny because when my publisher got it, she automatically assumed it was going to be for young adults because my protagonist was young. Um, and, of course, I had kept it very wholesome, and there's no gratuitous violence or grisly scenes or really bloody, you know, anything. It's really quite innocent as far as what I describe, even though what happens in the background is not so innocent. Um, but it, in the end, it, it it's become a book that can be read by, say, a 10-year-old or a 100-year-old. I have a 97-year-old fan who just loved it, you know, and, and a lot of people my age also like it because it takes them back to the days of penny candy and comic books and five-cent sodas and, you know, all of our people of my generation, our childhood things. That was kind of fun to insert all that stuff. Yes, and I suppose you, you know, you're tapping in not only to your own nostalgia and Gus the character's nostalgia, but perhaps the reader's nostalgia too. Oh yeah, yeah. I've had so many people write to me. You know, and the the best part about being a writer, which I'm sure you know, is connecting with the readers. And to me, of course, I love the writing process and all that. I, I'm addicted to it. But to me, that really is one of the very best parts because. When people write to me and say, oh, it reminded me of my childhood when I had, you know, I remember those soda bottles and I remember the the fireballs and blah, blah, blah. You know, it's just, it makes me feel so validated as a writer that I could connect with a person on that level, you know. Mm. Now, talk to me a little bit about, we, we, we've talked about this before, but um, about 11. Why is 11, you know, why is your protagonist 11? Why did you pick that year? Well, Maggie, I uh, <laughs> when people ask me how old I am, you know, I tell them on my license I'm 55, but I'm really 11 <laughs> yeah, inside. <sure>. Yeah, <laughs> I feel I don't know. I have an affinity for that age. That is, um, I don't know how normal it is, but <laughs> I feel very comfortable in that age. And I think it's because 
11 was an age that still was, at least in my life, it was still very innocent, very pure. You know, I spent that time, my time as a boy at 11 just playing, just simply playing outside and running around through the woods. And I was lucky enough to get my first horse at that age. And so that opened up a whole new world of um, cowboys and Indians with my pals that had horses, you know. And we would just take off into the woods and uh, ride for like the whole day, you know, playing games and and chasing each other and having races. And uh, it was, oh, it was just a great age. And even though it was sort of verging on that, you know, the preteen angst kind of a thing and maybe a little bit of a coming-of-age sort of feelings. Um, they weren't so bad that it was crippling, you know, yet. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think you, I you have a son that age. Yeah, all the understanding of adulthood without the um, the responsibility of it yet. That's right. But do you, do you feel, right. though, that the, in terms of Gus's development as a character, that, you know, perhaps it would have been that kind of thing where, you know, evil is just on the edge and mm-hmm. you can perceive it. You're old enough to perceive it. You're not going to yes. wipe it. You know, you're old enough to let it settle into you, but right. still young enough to be able to push through it without it sort of To be able down. to recover from the trauma and the, yeah, yeah, because And he, even perhaps to see yourself as being able to deal with it, mm-hmm. to, you know, to feel that you have mm-hmm. the power over it. Well, you know, it's true because um, actually my grandfather died when I was 11 and I think back on how I reacted to that at 11 versus how I reacted to the death of everybody else that happened after I was the age of, age 40. And when I was an adult and all these people died, I just was crushed. But at 11, I hate to admit it almost, but I was like very resilient. You know, I loved my grandfather and it was very sad, but I got over it quite quickly and was able to go on with my life. And um, like, I, I guess maybe there is that ability to insulate yourself a little bit from the reality of it. And um, I don't know. Mm. You have a Maybe son that age. Maybe begin don't you? feeling a little bit empowered, too. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now I love that Gus. Uh, you know, he's, uh, Gus is starting to develop. He's he's had quite a few books now, and uh, and we know of his his youth now as well as um, you know <laughs> where he is. I love that he gets to write his own blog. Do, do you feel in a way <laughs> that you could ultimately develop a kind of literary relationship with him, like the way Daniel Handler has with Lemony Snicket, yeah. or Barry <laughs> Humphreys has with Damon Everidge, where you actually start um, referring to each other? You know, maybe <laughs> yeah. I do. I do. It's really strange, but I do. Um, it's that way whenever I... Um, sometimes I'm asked to interview my own characters. You know, I have to... I have, next, I have an assignment to interview Siegfried, and that one's going to be coming up at um, mysteryfiction.net sometime in the near future. And I, it, it's just so cool and also so strange <laughs> to do because it, it feels so real. You know, I mean, these, these characters, they live in this parallel universe of mine. They're completely alive in my head. There's no doubt about that. And to me, there's just you know, no question of who they are and what they would do and what's in this circumstance or that or what they would say, or how they would react. You know, it's all just, you just look at them and there it is. <laughs> you know? And so it is kind of strange to have Gus writing a blog about me, you know, <laughs> talking about this guy Lazar, you know. <laughs> oh, a little convoluted, but lots of fun. Yeah, as long as he doesn't, uh, you know, plead with you for uh, changes to the plot. <laughs> yeah, really, <laughs> leave me alone. I know what I'm doing, yeah. <laughs> yeah don't kill me off, don't kill me off. Yeah. <laughs> 
There was a good movie oh. about that. <laughs> um, so talk to me a little bit about the mystery genre. What what draws you to it? Why have you been, you know, pretty much everything you've written now um, in terms yeah, of books? Yeah, I, I am really stuck on mysteries, um, and I think I probably will be forever. But um, since I was a kid in grade school, uh, we used to have a, a book club called the Arrow, <clears throat> excuse me, the Arrow Book Club, and I would order you know, a gazillion books every week. My parents luckily would, we didn't have a lot of money, but they let me do that. And so I would order, you know, five, six, seven books every time the, the flyer came out, and they were always mysteries. They usually featured dogs or horses, you know, and, of course, kids. Um, and uh, that sort of rolled into me liking the English mystery authors because my parents both read mysteries. My mom loved P.D. James and Agatha Christie. My dad also liked them, but he was also a big Rex Stout fan. And then later on in my teens, he introduced me to John D. MacDonald, the Travis McGee series, which I just gobbled up and loved. And I think he was probably my first, what I would call, writing teacher. You know, all the people I've read have been my instructors. And I have never had a, I don't think I took more than a couple of writing classes in, in college when I was in engineering school, but the, um, the the reading I did was how I learned to write, and I think you learn, you sort of absorb, you know, what is pace and what is tension and, and what's good dialogue from these examples. Um, and then as I got older, I liked people like um, Tony Hillerman and um, and actually Dean Coons now, his Odd Thomas series. I don't like horror, you know, as a genre, but this is very different from that. It's... Um, just beautifully written stories about this young fry cook, you know, named Odd Thomas. And he says things in this book that just stop me in my tracks and make me have to read them over and over again. Like, he'll, he'll say, um, I mean, who do you know that says things like, the light buttered the walls, or, or the shadows oiled the corners. You know, he has such amazing verb choices and uh, and it's also natural, and he'll stick these little bits of poetry into a you know a, a normal uh, a scene that's going along, and sort of slide them in. But whenever they come in, they're like little gifts, little bits, little gems that you can catch. And and to me, that that's been teaching me a lot too. I I really enjoy that. So yeah, mystery as it is, um, I I do think that maybe someday I might you know expand and. If I was going to expand, I might do something like a, a romance. <laughs> that could happen someday. Yeah, you can always throw a little, a little mini mystery in. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but there's something about a mystery that, you know, because you're digging to find the truth. Sometimes it's shocking, horrible truth, and sometimes it's exciting truth. But there's always this this quest to find out what really happened. And I have, I think, as an engineer, I have that inside me because we're always trying to find out <clears throat> you know why did this problem happen on the machine and and you dig and you dig and you dig until you find out what what was the cause um and it's it's a lot like solving a mystery you know the puzzles of of engineering and the puzzles of mysteries really aren't that different in character and that kind of thing gets my blood pumping mm. now um you mentioned your engineering job and I know that one of your colleagues at Murder by Four had an article in which she bemoans the way her day job is killing her writing time. <laughs> yeah. um, just talk to me, because Kodak's been great with you, haven't they? They have. I, I am mm. very talk fortunate to Talk to me about that balance, there. how you manage that balance. And, and you know, what, 
even just the relationship between the day job and the writing and how, mm-hmm. you know, how you manage to make use of those two together. Or is it a total schizophrenia for you? You know, do you see them as completely <laughs> separate sides of Aaron? Well, it, it is a balancing act. And what I do is I'll get through the day, come home, have dinner, do the chores, go outside, pick the garden, you know, all that stuff. And then I have a few hours left where I have a choice. I can either sit there and watch TV or I can write. And I've chosen to give up TV. You know, I mean, what am I losing, right? I mean, nothing, really. You know, and what am I gaining? I I do love movies and I I cherish my movies, but but what am I gaining? You know, I'm gaining the time to actually produce a couple books a year. And if you're consistent about it and give yourself, you know, goals, I try to do like a chapter a chapter a day. And when I'm in when I'm in the new books, I love your rooster, by the way. (laughs) I just can't keep them quiet during the show. It's so funny. I love it with a great background. Um, And and so. there is always the challenge to find time. But, you know, you're a writer. You know that if you are a writer, you have to write. You long for that time. You ache for every moment. You know, and if you don't get your fix every day, I know I feel cheated. You know, so I have to make the time, period. There's no question about it. Now, when I was younger and my daughters were uh, needed a lot more from me, you know, the chauffeuring and the getting lunches ready for the next day and helping with the laundry and all that. There was not as much time, and I didn't write back then as much. So I understand when people have young kids how difficult it is. Right now I'm, I'm lucky because I'm, we're empty nesters, and we do see our daughters a lot and our grandsons a lot, but we also have our evenings free. So it makes a big difference. You know, and It's something everybody, every writer can look forward to are those, those days when the kids are gone and you actually have a few hours for yourself. It will happen. <laughs> Thanks. Because <laughs> I know you're busy no, you're, with little ones. Yeah, look, you, you are the best self-publicist that I know. No um, way, tell really? Me some of the more, uh, yeah, definitely. <laughs> tell me some of the more interesting and unusual things you've done to, to publicize Tremolo. Well, to tell you the truth, I feel like I should be doing so much more. You know, like I should be doing 10 hours a day of going out to all the websites and getting my name up there and logging profiles in and, and um, and I can't do all that. I, I I maybe do an hour a day if I can. But what I did with Tremolo for the first time was I did a virtual blog tour, which is basically like having a real book tour, except you're going onto people's websites and you do either an interview or they'll put post an excerpt for you and um, introduce you to their readers. Uh, sometimes they'll um, write a little review for you. You know, and uh, it all depends on what the host wants to do. I, I was able to get, I think I had 13 or 14 hosts for Tremolo, one of which you were, thank you very much. And um, it opened up great, great um, groups of new folks that I had never met for me. Um, we did it from December to April. So every week there was a new blog where I was um, being featured. And so you go on, and perhaps it's an interview, and then the people that read the blog all the time would read it and then comment, and then I would go on and comment back, and you know you get a little conversation going. And so throughout the week, you keep track of that until the next one comes up. Um, it was really it's an excellent way to, to um, get your book out there and your name out there without having to actually travel. So I recommend mm. it. Yes, the, the virtual tour. Mm-hmm. Mm. And, um, you know, do you find 
working on one book that you know the, the publicity that you've done you then when you get another book out um and you know it's not too long for you say mm-hmm. what, what is it about an average yeah. year and a half yeah um tremolo was out in november and mazurka is going to be out shortly probably october november again so it's coming they're coming right on top of each other as well as the first book in my sam moore mysteries series it's called healy's cave that one's coming out right after mazurka because you see i wrote all these books for five years i just wrote and wrote and wrote and i didn't Mm -hmm. worry about agents or publishing or anything i just wrote because i did it for me and then eventually I said, oh, I guess I have to figure out how to get these published. So I ended up having um, quite, I've had like, I've got 12 books done and, I, and they're all sort of sitting there. And when I have time, you know, when I take time from writing the new ones, I'll stop, get an old one polished up and send it in. And it just so happened in this case that my publisher wanted two of them at once. So so I'm going to have two to, to promote shortly. I'm almost uh, not looking forward to it. It's going to be crazy. So, so never mind the tricky balance between the day job and the writing. What about the tricky balance between the writing and the promoting? Yeah. Oh, oh if I didn't have to promote, I'd be so happy. <laughs> you know, there were the, those days, those first five years, when all I did was write. I was never happier as a writer, even though I didn't have a lot of feedback, which I do kind of crave and my big old ego likes it. You know, um, it just was a pure time when I could go off into these worlds and create these wonderful stories, and then write the next story, and then the next story, and you know, and the and the the books just kept tumbling out of me, and it was a, it was fantastic. I never had to worry about, oh, I wonder if I should put a new blog up today, or you know, who's going to be commenting on this article, and you know, I've got the social songs. networking. Oh, I have so many things going now. With I have columns. I have a column on gather.com. Um, every Saturday morning I do a column and I'm the writing host for the Saturday Writing Essential, they call it. And then on Sunday morning I post my blog on the murder, um, Murder by Four at blogspot.com, that one. And then I, of course, meanwhile, try to keep my website up to date with all of my events. And I like. And, and while you're talking about your website, and before we forget, please do yeah. tell people how to find you now. Yes, it's www.lagardmysteries. It's L-E-G-A-R-D-E, mysteries.com. That's all one word. Um, and you also can find my other series that's going to be debuted later at www.moremysteries. That's M-O-O-R-E, mysteries.com. So those are the two main sites. Um, in addition to, there is a, I have a personal blog, which is um, aaronlazar.blogspot.com. And um, our, we have a writing blog that I'm one of the four folks that writes. It's called Murder by Four, and it's M-U-R-D-E-R-B-Y, and then the digit, the numeral four, uh, dot blogspot.com. So all of those keep me busy. And then, of course, the various writing groups and um, other places, you know, book spots where you put your books up and com- folks comment and I also like to do photography, so I have a lot of places where I'm posting photos all the time. It's uh, it's getting kind of <laughs> a little bit hard to find writing time these days, but I'm not going to give up on that. Sure. And speaking of writing time these days, we're almost out of time. We've got two minutes. But oh. just quickly, um, tell me a little bit about what you're now working on. Okay. I'm working on the next book in the Adult Gus series, the one that follows Mazurka. It's called Fire Song, An Unholy Grave, and it takes place in East Goodland, New York, which is Gus's hometown, 
and it involves the Underground Railroad, uh, the collapse of a salt mine, um, the disturbing of Native American burial grounds, and um, some terrible things that happen to the lo- local reverend, and they're all tied together. So it's kind of oh, fun. That sounds fascinating. <laughs> so we'll look out for that. Wonderful. Um, oh, that you. is unfortunately all we have time for. We could probably go on for another couple of hours, but um, oh, we're out of time. So, Aaron, thank you so much for coming on to the show. Thank you, Maggie. Thank you. And anybody who's missed those websites, um, this will be available almost instantly in podcasts, so all you have to do is go back, re-listen, and you can pause it and listen again as many times as you like, so um, please do so. Our next guest, um, and this is next week, will be Howard Waldman, who will be talking to us about his latest novel titled Good Americans Go to Paris When They Die. So we'll see you then. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. <laughs>